You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. I don't want to kill, but uh, I, I couldn't find any way to eat the girl's meat fresh, so I thought I have to kill. I decided to eat her up. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains, some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones, some monster party. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of Where is the Line? My name is Kevin, and with me today is my friend Samantha. Say something disturbing, Samantha. Corn colored. (laughs) Corn colored? Yes. I don't know what that is in relation. Wait, maybe I do. Yeah, and if you don't say it, I'm going to say it later. Well, you can't say it right now. (laughs) No. Wait, no, what? Oh, I thought you were about to say it. I thought you were about to spill the beans on what corn-colored no, was in reference to. No, I was just saying if you don't end up being the one saying corn-colored in the episode, I was going to make sure it got said. So when you hear the phrase corn-colored, honk your horn. Where's the lines broadcasting from our brand new studio It's today. so nice. I just moved, and uh, I have just got the new recording space put together in the new house. I like it. I prefer it. And the lighting in here is more moody than before, which I prefer. As I've been moving recently into the new space, Samantha has picked up quite a bit of the slack for this episode. (laughs) I haven't been able to devote as much time as I normally would to looking into this. So I really appreciate Samantha. It was my pleasure. It really was. (laughs) Of course. And I bought you a small gift to say thanks. Yes. When I walked into the recording studio this evening, there was a very large canister of Lysol wipes just for me in the flavor of mango and hibiscus, which I have not tried yet. And it touched me. I told you it touched me. Thank you. I like how you call it flavors instead of scents. (laughs) (laughs) So are you ready to get into this episode? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. In June of 1981, a tiny, unassuming Japanese man named Asei Sagawa fulfilled a fantasy that had been gnawing at him for most of his life when he murdered and ate a young woman in Paris, France. Cannibalism in modern times is unusual, but it's not entirely unheard of. But what sets Asei apart from other modern cannibals is, for one, he is, to me, the most annoying human being that we have ever talked about on this show, and... Two, after murdering and eating someone, Asei Sagawa, within just a few years, was a free man and enjoying a very peculiar stint of celebrity in which he began turning up on talk shows to lightheartedly discuss his experience of killing and eating someone, and he eventually even used his notoriety to delve into the adult film industry. And that's what we're talking about today. Issei Sagawa, Cannibal man about town, and the most annoying fucking asshole we have ever talked about on Where is the Line. Issei Sagawa has, for most of his life, been a very pitiable-looking person. 
he's very tiny. It's said that he stands just under five foot tall, and his head is noticeably too large for his body. He was born premature, and he never really grew out of having that premature baby look. Mm-hmm. So even now at 70, he kind of looks like a four foot wrinkled premature baby. I agree. <laughs> Say was a bright kid. He did really well in school. And uh, apart from his looks, he seemed normal enough until about puberty. Say's family never talked about sex ever with him. So when his body starts to change, you know, he starts going through puberty. He starts thinking that there's something wrong with him. And the most worrisome thing to him about the experience of puberty was the phenomenon of the erection. First erections can be terrifying, I hear. I think, well, I don't remember it being horrifying, but I can't imagine, you know, like, if you're not prepared for this. I mean, maybe I saw something somewhere, or I heard something, and I didn't freak out, but... Yeah, I mean, if your parents have never talked about sex or your body, that would just come at you as, um... Yeah, I mean, it's just so (laughs) random to wake up with, like, this part of your body that's way bigger than it was when you went to sleep. I mean, like, what if you woke up in the morning and your nose was, like, five times its normal size? Yeah, I'd be upset. (laughs) So Issei starts getting erections around puberty, and he doesn't know what to do with it. He hasn't learned to masturbate yet. And somewhere along the lines, he realizes that uh, it feels pretty good if his dog licks him down there. And this kind of turns into a thing for him. Yeah. And this is uh, probably the first sign in Issei's life that there's something off about this guy. Yeah. I mean, this is when his sexual desires definitely started to distort as soon as they started at puberty (laughs) is when at puberty is when asesagawa's sexual (laughs) proclivities start getting weird so in between getting these blowjobs from his dog as a young schoolboy issei was already starting to fantasize about eating people his classmates in particular he recalled later in life that he would look at some other young boy in his class He would look at their thigh, and he would be left with the impression that that young boy's thigh looked flavorful to Mm -hmm. him. Very tasty. Um, Did you know Issei first had a dream when he was very young? I did not know that. Um, Yeah, in this dream, he and his brother were being boiled alive inside of a large cast iron cauldron. And after the dream, Issei said that he always started to fantasize about being a cannibal. Hmm. How old was he when that happened? That's like pre-first grade. Oh, So the dream happened before he enters school and starts seeing his classmates. And yeah, so he had that dream about him and his brother. So at around five years old, he's already starting to think about eating people. Yes. Hmm. So regardless of when Issei started developing these desires to eat somebody, there are some theories on why he started getting this interest in cannibalism at such a young age. A lot of people, even Issei himself, have compared this interest in cannibalism to what you find in these Polynesian and Pacific Island cannibal cultures where people sometimes eat other people in order to take on their powers and qualities. So if you eat a smart person, you become smarter. If you eat a strong person, you become stronger. Or a beautiful person, you might become more beautiful. Yeah, and you know, and so... Since he is so small and kind of frail, he suggests that he thought that eating someone who was not those things would somehow improve his physical lot in life. I think that's bullshit. 
Yeah, I don't think that's the real reason. I mean, he's often said that he, when he first became obsessed with Western women and Western women's beauty, because they were tall, healthy, tan, blonde, and he just knew that if he could eat them, that he would absorb their energy. But I mean, the, these, you know, these Pacific Island cannibal people, I mean, this is cannibalism is part of their culture. They as a people over hundreds of years or thousands of years have gotten to this point where their beliefs and things like gods and, you know, whatever have kind of culminated yeah, into generations of entrenched ideas in there. Yeah. Person. Mm hmm. You know, I, I'm just not buying that just this little bitty guy came to the conclusion or came to the notion of eating someone within, <laughs> you know, within within his within one lifespan, which is something that takes cultures, these cultures of people he's comparing himself to generations to get to that. Anyway, I, I think that Issei's only problem, which is a problem that a lot of people have, is that he was just sexually repressed. Yeah. His family didn't talk about it. There's no way he had any porn laying around, you know? Like, yeah. And I find people that are sexually repressed, usually they find a strange fetish. They get weird. Yeah, they get weird. Were you sexually repressed as a child? No. Actually, I was what was considered a hypersexual child. What? Yes. <laughs> how, there... do you, how would you define your childhood hypersexuality? Well, my parents got called in many a times to elementary schools or had to be talked to by little friends, parents of mine, because like as soon as I was four years old, I was constantly trying to hunch little boys. <laughs> I used to call it hide and go hunch. And, what? Um, yeah. Did you come up with that on your own? Yeah. Hide and go hunch. Yeah, as a little kid. I mean, that's what I tell little boys. And they'd ask me and I'd be like, let's go around here. And then, you know, it'd always be with our clothes on and it's dry humping. But one time I was six years old and I was playing with a little five-year-old boy in the apartment complex that I lived in, and we were in his apartment up in his bedroom, and I had gotten him to go on the side of his bed to take off all his clothes. I took off all my clothes, and I got on top of him, and we're hunching naked. His mother comes into the room, flips out, and I jump up, and I say, we weren't doing anything. We were just playing human building blocks. And she snatched me up and made me put my clothes on and <laughs> took me over to my mom. I was never allowed to see that little boy again. So I was a hypersexual child. <laughs> Is and this I, one of those things that you're going to make me take out of this? No. Okay, good. No, because, you know, I think that this might be use that. this might be beneficial to a lot of people <laughs> out there because I think that's one of those things where, like, people have kids and the kids do all kinds of weird, weird shit. Yeah. And when it gets that level of weird, people don't talk about it to each other. <laughs> I mean, like, I have 100% <laughs> that, your, that your mother or this other kid's mother did not go to their friends and be like, Oh my God, you know what my kid was doing with a little redheaded girl all the other day? <laughs> like, everybody acted like that shit just did not happen after that. I know. I All I remember is my mother being horribly embarrassed. But you know what? I don't know where it came from. It's like, as soon as my first memories, like, I just always knew about sex and what to do. Like, I mean, I was five years old in my little garden pool with the hose on, filling it up, like, near my privates, getting off. <laughs> 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 oh my god we're gonna end up with like a bunch of like pedophile listeners now no Listen guys your I, stories i do not think that i was molested i have never had any like repressed memory pop up like i just always knew about sex i think it's because one time my parents went to a drive-in porno when i was literally they had drive-in pornos back in the 80s what yes it was near the military base we lived on 
in Virginia. I don't think it was like hard. It may have been some of it that was, soft core no, stuff. No, 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 like no. A, like a, I remember what I saw. It was five weight benches in a room. There were five naked men laying on the weight benches. Five naked women came in with plates with lemon wedges on them. And they all knelt at the weight benches of the guy that they were going to give a blowjob to. And then they take their penis and they squirted lemon onto the penis and start giving them <laughs> blowjobs. And I remember this. And I was in the back seat because my parents thought I was asleep. So that's why they thought they could go into, I don't know what the fuck they thought they were going to do. They just wanted to watch a porn. Anyways, my mom says the next thing she knew, I was up in the back seat going, Mommy, what's that? Pointing at like huge penises on the drive-in screen. And um, I don't know, maybe that's part of it. You've spoken with your mother about this recently. Are you sure you didn't just dream this? I believe that you believe this. No, me and my mom talk about this all the time and laugh about it. How they were so stupid to think that they could get away with doing that. And my mom even says, yeah, it was that big fat man uh, that's really hairy. And I was like, Ron Jeremy? And she's like, it was a Ron Jeremy film. We should dig this movie up. <laughs> Do you think you would have I some have kind tried of like to find flashback it. to that? You know how many times I've Googled lemon wedges and penises? <laughs> <laughs> because of this or yeah, for other I, reasons? I wanted to find the film. <laughs> It's weird when you when you see stuff or experience something like that that you haven't experienced in years, like the things yeah, that happen. Yeah, that in might your brain. rush back. I had a Zima about a year ago <laughs> really? because they re-released Zima or something. I didn't know that. And I had had like you know, for anybody who doesn't know, Zima was this hideous clear alcoholic malt, drink that malt was beverage from like the early nineties or something, and then. It's gone. And then I don't have one again until about a year ago, like 20 years later. Oh my God. And I took a sip of it, and I feel like I could literally feel neuropassages opening up in my brain back to the memory of what Azima tasted like. It was so weird. Yeah. So what were we talking about? Well, we were, talk we were talking about people with repressed sexuality and how they can become big old freaks. Hey, speaking of dogs getting people off, when I was in junior high, there was a girl in eighth grade that I was friends with, and she, honest to God, had me and a bunch of other people, guys included, I mean boys, you know, we're in junior high, come over to her house to show us that she could get her dog to eat peanut butter out of her vagina. What? And she did in front of all of us. And then she got so made fun of that she had to leave and change schools. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen yeah. this. Like, sometimes I just wonder. What, if I'm making that up? I believe that you believe all of this. <laughs> okay. Which is a phenomenon that I understand because I believe that my dad enjoyed running over wiener dogs for years. But just wiener dogs. And, like, every time he would see one, he would just run it over. I held on to that till I was, like, 30. And I bring this up to mom one time, and I'm like, Mom, you remember when dad used to run over those wiener dogs? And she was like, what the hell are you talking about? Your dad never ran over a wiener dog? And I was like, no, he used to run over them all the time. Like, we, in, you, in your mind, you could see Oh, yeah, I happen? remember that like it actually happened. And the only thing that talked me out of that, the only reason I don't believe that still is that my mom said to me, how many times has a wiener dog run out in front of your car? <laughs> it's like, I don't, you know, I can't say that that ever, that I have ever had a spe specifically a wiener dog run out in front of my car. And then she goes, how many wiener dogs did you say your dad ran over? Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's like five or 10 or, you know, more. And then I was like, oh, 
that probably did not actually happen. I, that was something that, that's a false memory from somewhere. Well, okay, that's your false memory. But my peanut butter dog vagina memory <laughs> is real. I remember it was a basset hound. <laughs> you know what? Your peanut butter dog vagina story is making Issei sound like he's not that weird. Like, <laughs> like you're like, oh, I got a friend that did weirder shit than that when we were kids. Well, I mean, I don't know. I couldn't think of a, another time where I could tell my story about the girl I saw get peanut butter licked out of her vagina by a big goopy-eyed basset hound. I really hope that we get to a point in the story where you cannot one-up Issei anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. So, as a child, Issei is uh, already developing what two people, other than Samantha, uh, are very strange sexual... Desires. Desires and activities. But it's not until 1972, though, when Issei does something... Really creepy. So in 1972, Issei was living in Tokyo, and he's around 23 at this time. He's walking on the streets of Tokyo one day, and he sees this beautiful blonde German girl uh, walking past him. And then somehow he manages to kind of see her over the next course of like a couple of weeks. Like he's stalking her, basically. He finds out where she lives. Issei's plan was to sneak into her apartment and hit her on the head with an umbrella. Thus knocking her out. And then he planned on getting a large knife from her kitchen, and he was going to cut into her ass real quick and take the meat and run. He just Let's re- go back to the umbrella. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why the fuck do you think an umbrella would knock her out? Why? I mean, like, that was the plan. It wasn't that, like he goes in there and he's like, what's around I can hit her with? Yes. And the first thing he grabbed, he, like, he went in there intending the to hit her with a fucking umbrella. That is so essay. To me, that is so essay. Yeah. Issei thought he could do that. So, yeah, like I said, his plan was to break into her apartment in the stealth of the night with an umbrella, knock her out, and then go get a large knife and cut into her butt and run away with some flesh. He gets into her apartment, and he's creeping around in the dark. And before he can actually exact his plan, he accidentally brushed against her stomach, I guess before he was about to knock her out with the umbrella. She's sleeping, by the way. She's asleep. He wakes her up, and before he can do anything, she starts screaming. He runs away, and then, you know, a little while later, like maybe the next day, he's arrested by the police, and he's charged with attempted rape. Uh, The police did not put it together that this was going to be an act of cannibalism, and he did not tell the cops at that time either that that was his true intentions. He just let it be like, yeah, I broke in. I was going to try to have sex with her, and that was that, and his powerful parents uh, you know, got him off and everything's fine and he's allowed to continue on with his life. Issei's parents were very wealthy, which is something we haven't mentioned yet. So after Issei gets in trouble for what gets deemed an attempted rape, he pretty much stays out of trouble for the next five years or so. In 1977, when he was 28, he moved to France as a postgrad to study literature at Paris Sorbonne University. Uh, by the way, this university merged with several other institutions in the area, so it no longer exists under that name anymore. Uh-huh. Now it's just Sorbonne University. Anyway, Issei becomes immediately enamored with a fellow student that he has there named Rene Hartevelt. Rene was 25 years old at the time. Later on, after everything happens, Issei writes this book called In the Fog, 
And he recounts seeing in a modern French literature course that they were both taking. He remembers seeing her there and he remarks on how tall she was and about her lovely pale complexion. As we've already talked about, Issei had a thing for Western white women. So Issei cannot stop staring at Renee Hardevelt. And Renee notices this and it is obviously making her uncomfortable. And Issei knows that it's making her uncomfortable. And a little while after this creepy staring incident, Renee and Issei are on the same train together. And Issei tells Renee, I was just staring at you because I was drawing your picture, which he was. It's not a creepy pervert thing. I'm an artist. <laughs> so Issei shows Renee this picture that he's drawn of her. Uh, she apparently finds this at least, you know, I mean, maybe it curbed the creepy staring guy into the not quite as yeah. creepy guy that drew my picture, which is a step up for Issei. <laughs> and... I hate that this guy bugs me so much. And what bugs me about this guy? Issei wrote about six books. Is that right? Yeah. None of them have been completely translated into English. Right. The first three chapters of In the Fog have been translated into English by someone online who, for whatever reason, never finished it. And I'm goddamn glad he didn't finish it because <laughs> I read those three chapters and just got so... I mean, this... I have never been so fucking annoyed by someone. He's fucking Joffrey Baratheon of murderers. <laughs> and it's the way he portrays himself in in the fog mm -hmm. that bothers me. And and you know, and I'm reading this and Issei's portraying himself as this like lovable, intelligent Woody Allen type of character. Yeah. And he's portraying himself so closely as a character like that that I started looking up how popular Woody Allen was back in the 70s in Japan. Yeah. And it turns out Woody Allen was one of those handful of celebrities that was going over to Japan making commercials mm -hmm. for uh, like department stores and things right. under this clause that they those commercials were not allowed to be shown back in the States. Yes. So they would just fly over there, make a shit ton of money for, you know, doing a 30-second spot and then come back and nobody in the U.S. would ever know that it happened. No clue, yeah. And so I feel like the way that, that Issei writes about himself is really, it's either dishonest or he was modeling his own personality off of these, you know, whimsical, intelligent movie characters like Woody Allen. And I don't know why that bugs me so much, <laughs> but it does. Either way, I fucking hate him either way. I know you hate him. Well, he's a hateable guy. You know, while we're sitting here thinking about it, I'm start because I was like, either he's misrepresenting himself or he actually was acting like he was in some kind of movie. And I think it's probably the latter. I think that he was just walking around acting like some kind of Woody Allen who has taken the, the pervert onto a different level. Yeah, yeah. And what it reminds me of is, do you have friends who are trying to be stand-up comics? No. I know people yeah. who okay. are trying to break into the stand-up comedy business, and it is so fucking off-putting when they come up to you and, like, just try to have a conversation with you. Mm -hmm. You know, like, they try to pretend that, oh, this is a conversation I'm having, but they're actually just trying out their fucking bit on you. Yes, I can imagine God, how that's that could be annoying. So, like, I wouldn't say it's, it's just off-putting, because, like, in my mind, like, I just want to say, I know you're doing a... <laughs> 
a fucking bit here. Bit. Can yeah. you just talk? You know. Yeah. And I imagine that that was always what it was like to talk to Issei. Yeah. I'm probably <laughs> putting a whole lot <laughs> into his character. Well, I've had a you know I've had a difficult month. So no, I know. I think that I'm taking it You're out. You're taking on it out on Issei. <laughs> but fuck him, he deserves it. Yeah. So he's in Paris. Yeah, so so Issei is walking around pretending to be Woody Allen, but also he has this really perverse tint to that. So there's a passage in In the Fog where Renee Hardevelt and some of her friends are going to go to dinner, and Issei just starts kind of pouting, and, uh, you know, Renee being apparently a very kind person is, you know, but, you know what's wrong, Issei? Mm-hmm. And Issei pouts and says, nobody invited me to the dinner. And so Renee goes and talks to the friends. What she has obviously done is gone to her friends and said, hey, will somebody please invite him to the dinner because he's upset and pouting. And so she walks away to do this. Issei knows that that's what she's doing. But in his book, he describes Renee walking away and says, quote, she was dressed fashionably in baggy pantaloons. Her protruding buttocks puffed out the fabric, leaving a thin cleft down the middle. Beautiful. Why fucking (laughs) include that? Why don't you just say, I think she went and told her friends to, you know. He's a monster. He's a creepy little pervert. Ugh. (laughs) Issei was definitely an involuntary celibate, an incel. I'm just going to say it. He was. And it's probably because, so he's an intelligent enough guy. I think people give him too much credit for his intelligence. Oh, I He was a too. smart guy. He was a though. smart guy. But when it comes to discerning other people's feelings towards him, understanding emotion and, you know, what people's faces are doing as it relates their intent, Issei just had no concept of this, apparently. Yes. Because he's clearly bugging the shit out of everybody around him, and he has... And he clearly doesn't know that he's doing this. Like, it's in his writing that he, you can just see it there. I mean, it's, he doesn't say it, but. It's there. He yeah. clearly is annoying the shit out of everybody around him. <laughs> and he doesn't know that he's doing it. And he didn't even know that he was doing it years later when he wrote that fucking book. <laughs> but all you got to do is just read the goddamn book. And you could tell that he is unknowingly getting on everybody's fucking nerves. And he never figured that shit out. He's the little bitty guy that comes into the bar and buys a girl a drink and the girl says, thank you. And the guy is like, she's all into me because she said thank you. And she took the drink. She's totally into me. And then he follows her around for the rest of the fucking night until somebody beats the shit out of him. Yeah. But unfortunately, nobody ever beat the shit out of Essay. So he never got the message. I know. He's totally that guy. (sighs) I mean, you, you can't even be nice to a guy like Essay. Because it's not gonna, it's not going to end there. And an example in the book of how Issei is unrealistically understanding the feelings of the people around him. So there's this point where he's with the he's tagging along with this group of people, and he's kind of just shooting the breeze with this girl who is not Renee. And meanwhile, Renee is walking behind him, and Issei in the book says, "quote." All the time, I was acutely aware of Renee walking behind us listening, and I kept wondering what she was thinking, seeing me speaking with another woman like this. (laughs) I mean, really? Yeah, I know. I'm not saying that you cannot get over somebody's physical appearance and be fine with their personality. I'm friends with you. (laughs) 
But Renee was very attractive. Issei looks like one of those fucking gray aliens that everybody yes. said the aliens looked like. He does. You know, in the 80s and 90s. And his personality is just shit. It it's is. just complete fucking garbage. shit personality. He's just garbage head to fucking toe. <laughs> There's no goddamn way that Renee, a cute 20-something-year-old college student, is getting jealous over him. And for whatever fucking reason, Issei just cannot get it through his... <sighs> Never mind. I'm getting too worked up about it. I'm getting way too fucking worked up about it. need to punch something. <sighs> no, I get it. He burns me up. I, I, just this type of person. And another part of his his weird little eccentricities with human interaction is that he takes everything so personally. Oh, I know. So personally, so seriously. So things like, like he'll go to the doctor and have to wait in the waiting room for an hour, which everyone has done. But to Issei, this would not happen if he were taller and if he were not Japanese. He believes that he sits in the waiting room waiting on doctors just like everybody else does, but it's some kind of slight to his character. Yes. He's got a big chip on his shoulder. And that makes... For a dangerous little dude. But, you, you know, and I think I think a, the, a, a part of the reason that he bothers me the way he does is because he's reminding me of, you know, I have a problem with short dudes. What? Have we talked about this? No. We've never talked about this? No. If it's late at night and I'm at a bar or something mm -hmm. and like one of those puffy little short guys comes in that's yeah. all like been working out and they're all buff. Okay. Uh-huh. I would say a good 60% of the time, if the buff short dude gets drunk, he's going to start fucking with me. <laughs> and I think that the reason that this happens is because I'm six foot four yes, and they tall. come in and they're like, that's the biggest dude in this bar that I'm pretty sure I could beat up. Yeah, so... This has happened so much. It gets to the point that unless I am having a fucking blast, if I see a little muscly dude walk into a bar <laughs> at one o'clock in the morning, I'll just leave because I don't want to fucking deal with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you want to take a break? Sure. We took a short break. Kevin had to get something out. He was very upset. <laughs> I think I've calmed down a little bit. All I'm going to say is that I've never read so little by someone and so quickly despised the person who wrote the words as I have with Issei Sagawa and In the Fog. Yeah, I agree. Okay. I mean, you know, there are serial killers and things, and I no. don't hate them the same way that I hate. I mean, there's people who have done worse things that I don't hate as much as I fuck hate this guy. I totally understand what you mean. <laughs> so anyway, Issei is taking advantage kind of of Renee's sympathy towards him to uh, get her to hang out with him more than she probably wants to. I mean, there's no way to know that for sure, but that's the way it reads to me. And by extension, he's kind of hanging out with this group of friends that Renee has. And one day, this group of friends uh, that Issei is tagging along with start sharing their home addresses with each other. And because Issei is just kind of there... He ends up with Renee's address. And so after that, he starts doing this weird thing where he's going to Renee's apartment complex. He doesn't know exactly what room she's in, but he'll walk inside the building and uh, kind of look around for clues of where she might live. And then he'll start getting paranoid that Renee's going to come out a door and see him and he'll just take off running. 
Yeah. <laughs> so he does this over and over. Goes into the apartment building, gets paranoid, runs away. And all during this time, Issei's fantasies about eating someone are getting stronger and stronger. And at one point, he starts hiring prostitutes. Yes. And he'll play this weird little game where he'll hire a prostitute. They'll come over to his apartment. And he has somehow acquired this twenty-two caliber rifle with a silencer equipped. And he'll pay these prostitutes to come over whenever they're doing something where they'll have their back turned to him. He yes. will pull out this uh, twenty-two rifle that he's hidden and just kind of point it at them. For as long as he feels like he can get away with and then put it away before they turn around. So when they do things like when they go to the bathroom or something, he will grab his rifle and point it at them while they're on the way to the bathroom yeah. and then he'll put it away. Actually, he was quoted as saying, every time they used the toilet and had their backs to me, I had the gun, but I could not pull the trigger. It was not for a moral or a religious reason. I was scared that by pulling the trigger, I would be given into my desires. But it was more than a desire. It was more of an obligation. He's starting to build up his nerve by going through this little routine that he has with these prostitutes. And finally, Issei Sagawa is ready to carry out this plan that he's been building up in his mind for so long. He actually gets Renee Hardevelt to come over to his apartment, I believe, but asking her for some tutoring in German. Yeah, um, she could read and speak in German. And he was, she came over to his apartment prior to June 11th in 1981. A couple of times uh, because he said he needed assistance with German and she was happy to oblige. So Issei gets Renee Hardevelt to come over under the pretense of giving him these lessons in German. And Issei has this weird thing that he does when anyone comes over to his apartment. So when people will come up and knock on the door, Issei will put on a record of George Friedrich Handel's mass. And Issei felt like this music was... Uh, soothing and perfect for greeting guests and creating a kind of relaxing atmosphere. In terms of creating a relaxing atmosphere, um, it does not do that. <laughs> it is, in fact, terribly foreboding sounding. It sounds like the kind of thing a weird cannibal murderer might play. Oh, my. When people come over to his house. It sounds exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> In his book, which I am going to try to not get too upset about again, Issei describes one of these times where Renee comes over. And he is just clearly making things up about the interactions between himself and Renee Hardevelt. So according to Issei, Renee is coming over being kind of flirty with him, of you course. know, flipping her hair around, licking her lips and things. And he even makes up this story, which I am completely convinced is total bullshit about this little... Uh, comedic romantic dinner that they had where Issei catches everything on fire and oh my god it's so funny and yeah. not at all reminiscent of the fucking lobster scene in Annie Hall <laughs> or derivative of it in any fucking way. <laughs> 
so he's, he's getting Renee to come over for these things, but she gets there and they say, I believe this part of the story, that he starts putting on this music and cooking dinner for her. I mean, she comes over here to help the man out. In his studies. With his German. Yeah. And Issei turns this into some kind, in his mind, into some kind of like Netflix and chill kind of situation. Which I am completely convinced that Renee was not interested in him. I just, I know I keep saying that, but I just, everything you look up about this says that they, you know, that she was interested in him. I mean, like, I almost never see anything where anybody just says, Issei says that she was interested in him. But it's bullshit. It is bullshit. She was not. Okay, I said I wasn't going to do that. So on this, <laughs> so on this particular time when uh, Issei and Renee have had this totally true and believable comedic experience of burning the dinner and filling up the room with smoke, uh, Renee goes and washes her hands at the sink, and Issei pulls out that silenced twenty-two rifle that he has. He aims it at the back of Renee's head, pulls the trigger. And nothing happens. So the gun misfires or for whatever reason fails to fire. Issei, like he's done with many of these prostitutes, uh, runs away and hides the gun. And Renee leaves the apartment that night having no idea that she almost got shot in the back of the head. Right. Issei is determined, though, to eat Renee. So he tells Renee um, a little bit later that there's a professor that he knows from Japan who is looking to have someone fluent in German read and record this particular German poem. And Issei tells Renee that she's the only person that he knows well enough to ask who might also speak German well enough to do a good job at this. So Renee, kind as she was, agreed and then comes over to Issei's house one more time. So Issei's going to record Renee uh, reading this poem and he puts a tape recorder on the table, hits record, and he goes over to his bookshelf and he grabs a book called Lyrics of the Expressionist Decade and has her read this German expressionism poem called A Bend by Johannes Becher. I've suffered enough of this hard time. Since I was conceived, cowardly and defiled, we glided over land on rails of light. We aim at you like discs attached to each other. Now it comes out of a weak chest, ransacked by raging. Warm breath is separated into cool twilight. So I will gladly praise the mighty Lord, the one that heads to the west with the red sun. He drives home the blood-swollen animal that wrapped around the cities at day and ate brains with evil greed until it was satisfied. As Renee Hardevelt's reading this poem into Issei's tape recorder, Issei sneaks away and grabs his silenced 22 caliber rifle that he's hidden in the room. He aims it at Renee's head and for the second time pulls the trigger. And this time it works. Blood spatters out of Renee's head and onto the table and onto the recorder and onto the book of poetry that she was reading from. And Issei's claim that after he fired this shot, Renee continued reading for a couple of seconds before she slumped to the side and fell out of her chair face up onto the floor. Issei's apparently never seen anyone die before, and he sees all of this blood, and he's looking at the color drain out of Renee's face, and he passes out. Uh, eventually, he wakes up, and he realizes that he's killed this woman. So at this point, he might be somewhat regretting what he's done, but there's no taking it back. Yeah. 
after he's done this. Uh, so he figures he might as well indulge in all of these cannibalistic and sexual desires that he's been keeping to himself mm-hmm. for so long. Shortly after he wakes up, Issei removes all of Renee's clothes. He's gone back and forth on whether or not he had sex with Renee's body. Most likely, though, according to the police, they believe that he did yes. have sex with the, with the corpse. Uh, once, once he's finished having sex with her, he rolls the body over onto its stomach and he starts gnawing on her buttocks. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to tear a piece of meat out of Renee's buttocks to presumably eat raw. Yes. Uh, but he's not able to do that. So he goes to the kitchen and he grabs one of those small little fruit knives and he starts stabbing it into Renee's backside, trying to cut a chunk out with that, and that doesn't work either. The knife's not sharp enough. So, uh, Issei has to go shopping for a proper knife to do this job with, and he comes back to the apartment with his new curved, adequately sharp knife, and he starts carving up Renee Hardevelt's corpse. And he is never shy about talking about this. He said, quote, I started with her ass because it looked like it would be the most delicious part. And he went on to describe the taste of Renee's flesh, probably the most vivid description that Issei has given about what this tasted like was when he said that it tasted like, quote, the best tuna, but without the smell. Can I point something out? Sure. One of the most disturbing descriptions of carving into Renee that really stuck out to me was when Issei said that he was surprised by all the fat oozing when he cut into her buttocks, all the fat oozing out, he said it looked corn-colored, not unlike cream corn. Was that it? Was that the word, corn-colored? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I almost never catch those. Like, I don't ever catch them until later. Should I say Honk that your is- horn, everybody. <laughs> if I was in the car, I'd be honking my horn right now. Oh, another thing. This made my butt hurt. Okay. <laughs> he described when he was carving open Renee's uh, butt, cutting through the layers of fat, that after he got past all the corn-colored fat oozing out, that he was eventually able to claw out the red meat from her butt. Once Issei gets started carving up Renee, he just destroys this woman's body. Yes. Um, I mean, he did not stop with these, these steaks that he got out to start with. And a lot of the cuts seem like what you might want to do if you were trying to cook this flesh. Issei had actually once met a butcher while he was on a cruise near Greece and had this lengthy conversation with this man about butchering animals. So Issei did at least have some theoretical understanding of what he's doing with uh, this knife of his. So her thighs, for example, were removed, which makes sense in the context of forming some kind of meal out of this person's body. But some of what he was doing, though, was clearly for sexual gratification. So, for example, he sliced her nipples off. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do anything with that other than just be a creepy gross guy yeah. that slices off nipples. Exactly. And he also carved out her anus. Yes, I was going to, uh, yeah. <laughs> there were some of the things that he did with Renee's body that seemed to have just been done to make the corpse look as horrible as possible. And one of these things is he cut off her nose. Yes. And so as Issei's slicing these parts off of Renee's body, he's putting them into uh, little baggies and labeling them 
with the parts of the body from which they came. And he's putting a lot of this in the freezer to save for later. And during all of this, Issei is taking photos that he most certainly is planning to masturbate to later on. Most definitely. I I believe he took up to 30 photos of the whole process Mm -hmm. of dismembering and mutilating her body, which the police later confiscated. Issei keeps what's left of Renee's body for several days uh, after he's destroyed it, essentially. And he only decides that it's time to get rid of it when she starts rotting. And according to Issei, the smell was starting to become a bit overpowering, and he was having some difficulty keeping flies out of his apartment. Yes. So as much as he enjoyed having this mutilated corpse around, he decides that it's time to get rid of it. And it's a it's a damn shame that with all of this fantasizing that Issei has done about murdering someone, all the practice that he's been getting with these prostitutes, how many times he's fantasized about eating someone, that he apparently never considered how to get away with disposing of what was left over. Yes. Because what he did was probably the stupidest fucking corpse disposal technique I have ever heard of. (laughs) I mean, he might as well. He would have probably been just as well off or better if he had just thrown the damn thing out the window. Yeah. (laughs) So what he does is he takes everything that's left... All of the bones and the, you know, the muscle and tissue that he doesn't, doesn't feel like keep. he's going to eat. Yeah. And he puts it into two great big suitcases. His plan is that he's going to put what's left of the body into these two big suitcases and take both of them at the same time to a public park called Bois de Bologna and throw them in to this small lake that is in the middle of this park. That is in the middle of a heavily trafficked park in Paris, France. Yeah, it's a bustling park. And for some reason, uh, he decides to do this while the sun is still out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and that's not even the stupidest part of this. The no. stupidest part of this is that Issei Sakawa is like 90 pounds. And he's dragging, literally dragging, because he's not strong enough to pick them both up. For any length of time, he is often literally dragging two gigantic suitcases with a dismembered corpse in them to a taxi. Yes. Uh, Yeah. And the cab driver who helps him with the suitcases even says, hey, what do you got in here? A dead body? And (laughs) Issei says, no, it's books. (laughs) And, you know, he, he takes the taxi to this park and he gets out and he's this little guy dragging these suitcases which attracts some attention people are asking him if he needs help no i don't need any help i'm just dragging my two gigantic suitcases full of books through a public park (laughs) so in front of everybody out there he drags these two suitcases to the edge of this sort of slight embankment And I assume he at least thought nobody was looking at the time. And he shoves the the suitcases off. Someone was looking because there's a man who clearly saw what Issei had just done. But I guess as uh, kind of when you see somebody do something weird, you might say something that's relevant to what's happening, but not exactly explicit in your understanding what you saw. So the, the guy says, hey, are those your suitcases? To which Issei, having just thrown these suitcases off the cliff right in front of this guy, replies, no. (laughs) 
And the guy uh, walks down to the edge of the water, pops open one of the suitcases. There's a dismembered corpse in it, and Issa runs away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, he might as well have stayed there because it's not as though uh, Issa is uh, unidentifiable. Right. Uh, so the Paris police put out an APB for like a five foot tall crack baby. <laughs> and that Issa, uh, just within a few days. Yeah. Four days later, he's arrested. Four days later, he's arrested. God, like, just think about was his ego so out of control that he thought he could just take these suitcases out in broad daylight and dispose of them? And it, well, I, I don't, I, it's hard to get. I know. I know. It's I, hard to really. For a smart man, that's the dumbest thing he could have done. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just it, it, it's just hard to imagine what. There's a lot that he does that it's just so hard to relate to. Yeah. So, so Issa gets arrested, goes to jail for a bit. Uh, if anybody's going to have a bad time in jail, it's. Issei Sagawa, Um, and he should have spent the rest of his life there, but that's not what happened. In France, he gets declared insane and sentenced to an indefinite period in a mental institution, and he spends a couple of years there, and there's a lot of really complicated explanations for what happened after this way too short for eating a person's stint that he spends in this mental institution. There's explanations that involve political tensions between France and Japan, and there's a Japanese diplomat coming over, and there's a lot of complicated explanations for this. One of them is that because Issei was declared insane, his case file was sealed, and he eventually goes back to Japan and couldn't be charged for the crime because that case file was sealed. I think all you need to know, I think it boils down to Issei's family had money. Oh, absolutely. They hired him a great lawyer. Yeah, whatever loophole Issei wriggled himself through is not a loophole that would have been available to anyone of lesser means. Yes. Before he got sent back to Japan, you know, when he's in the mental hospital in France, uh, he's visited by a Japanese author that gets him to write a series of essays describing the murder and cannibalism of Rene. And, you know, that later gets turned into into the... In the fog. In the the in, book that yeah. infuriated me more than any other book ever had, right. except for maybe Moby Dick. This brings Issei quite a bit of publicity. There's photographers and journalists outside of the mental hospital. They want to talk to Issei. They want to see him. This is pissing French officials off. The court's mad. Uh, French taxpayers are pissed now that this guy is getting all this publicity and he's staying here on their tax dollars in this mental hospital. And so France just wants to be done with him because of all this. And yeah, they arrange it to where he can be sent back to Japan because they're done with him. Once Issei arrives back to Japan, he's immediately committed to the Matsuwaza Hospital, where he is examined by a psychologist. They found Issei to be sane. They said this guy is totally sane. He only has a slight sexual perversion, and that's why he committed this murder and cannibalism. But we think he's okay. Okay enough to be let go. On August 12, 1986, he walked free. And if you thought, like I do that Issei Sagawa was an insufferable little shit before. You're about to have your mind blown by the way this guy acts once he gets set free. 
<laughs> what kind of things did Issei Sagawa do, Samantha, after he was set free? Well, after Issei was set free, he's walking the streets of Japan, and he has become a minor celebrity. Everyone knows that this, this Japanese man, he just came back from France, and he murdered a girl and ate her. Everyone's real cool with it. Uh, he starts being invited on Japanese talk shows uh, where he's asked to describe the murder, and it's all real jovial. He's even invited onto cooking shows in Japan where he is asked to eat raw red meat for the audience. That is so strange. Yes. And, of course, he obliged. <laughs> I mean, Japanese culture is really interesting. It, it, I can't fault somebody for being entertained by that because I would absolutely fucking watch that cooking show. I know. I am the same I way. I <laughs> would not be proud of myself, but I would yeah, watch that. I would, I would watch, watch it. the shit out of I that. I get it. Yeah. So he's on the circuit of the talk shows in Japan and going on multiple cooking shows, game shows. Um, and, you know, he is called the celebrity cannibal or the cannibal celebrity or even lovingly known in Japan as the godfather of cannibalism. <laughs> so Japan loves him. He's wonderful. Uh, he's writing books. Uh, he even illustrated a very popular manga. And it basically shows the murder of Renee Hardevelt and other weird stuff. I just remember uh, one of the images I saw was of a drawing that he did of himself naked, holding the bleeding head of Renee Hardvelt uh, while he was jacking off and squirting cum into the air. I haven't seen that. How well did he portray himself in terms of endowment? Not well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he was yeah honest about that. Yeah, and so like Japan's loving it. They can't get enough of him. Around this time, too, is when Issei's uh, sexual attractions towards women drastically shift. He used to be obsessed with Western women's beauty. Now, he is finally embracing the beauty of Asian women. Um, he becomes so obsessed that he decorates his apartment with pictures of Asian women's butts. They're all over the place, and he loved taking photos of himself in front of those cutouts on his wall. The man loves butts. Yeah, so I find that interesting, you know, like the complete shift of what he found desirable. You know, I think maybe part of it has to be that he had finally moved back to Japan. and He's got this little bit of celebrity yeah. now, so there were probably actually women speaking to him. Speaking to him. And, uh, on purpose. Yes. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, he's into Asian women's butts now. So he's done the talk shows, the cooking shows, written books. Now he's starting to dabble into movies. In 1992, Issei was tapped to have a cameo in a Japanese exploitation film called Unfaithful Wife, Shameful Torture. In it, he plays Mr. Takano, a sadosexual voyeur. Uh, it was a small part in this erotic thriller, but he was in it. <laughs> and then he was in a movie in 1996 called The Weather Girl, which was a racy Japanese rom-com in which I say played a celebrity guest on the Weather Girls show. And that was 96. 1996. So they're still into this in 96. Yes. You know, if we're talking about 96 now, let's go back to 83. Okay. When the Rolling Stones released the worst fucking song in the world, which was about Issei. That's right. It was Too Much Blood was the name of the yeah. song. On the 1983 album, Undercover. Yeah, and it's it's... 
you know, the Rolling Stones were a cool band, but this period for them is there's other shit going on in music that they're not a part of, and so they try to be a part of that and fail miserably. <laughs> it's like, I mean, the Rolling Stones trying to do this, you know, mildly electronic drum machine kind of music like everything else that was happening in the yeah. 80s is like when babies are hearing adults speak and they just start saying this gibberish and to the baby it sounds just like what the adults doing and I believe to the Rowan Stones they felt like what they were doing sounded just like Tears for Fears but it didn't <laughs> it was fucking garbage it was like if you took every if you took the worst track off of every album with a drum machine in it that came out in the 80s and you got Superman to just mash them all together into a little fucking shit diamond. That's what that song is. Oh my. Have you heard that song? Jesus I, Christ. You know what? I can't horrible. even say that I have heard it. And I haven't listened to it since I found out like, no, I haven't heard it. And the lyrics are just... I mean, it, it's not one of those things where like, oh, there's some reference to cannibalism, but you have to ask Mick Jagger if it, you know, and Mick Jagger said, oh, it's about Issei Zagawa. No, the lyrics are like, I'm a little Japanese man who ate a French woman. Like, it's really <laughs> that. And they get the facts wrong in it. I mean, it's just. It's a hot mess. Yeah. Um, also, the Stranglers in 1981 record a song inspired by Issei called La Folie. How was that one? It actually is a good song. Oh, okay. I like The Stranglers. Also, in the 90s, Issei straight up shot a porn. Now, I came across a porn where he was dressed as the big bad wolf, and a woman, an Asian woman that was in the porn, was Little Red Riding Hood. Now, before they shot this, she did not know who he was, did not know his notoriety, had no clue. So they shoot the porn. I watched some of it. He's chasing her around in his big bad wolf costume, and she's... Like, oh, no, no. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's probably... <laughs> I wasn't trying to do an Asian accent. Oh, my God. You're so <laughs> racist. <laughs> okay. So she's Jesus. running around. You should have seen her. She she had put her fingers next to the side of her <laughs> eyes and pushed them up. I did not. I was like, oh, my God. So I was just trying to sound like a scared little girl. <laughs> I know we say nothing's off the table here, but <laughs> your stereotype of the, the <laughs> Japanese people, I don't know if it belongs here. I apologize wholeheartedly. So they shoot the porn. They do the deed. They're sitting on, she's sitting on a couch afterwards, wrapped up in a towel. And this is when the filmmakers tell her who Issei is. She takes in the news. She's nervously laughing, asking them, are they for real? Is this real? Then she wants to know if she can go. Is it over or is it done? She wants to leave. Interesting. After this porn was shot, that girl later became friends with Issei. I will give it to the Japanese. They are very good at weird stuff. Yeah. And I don't mean that negatively. Like, I like weird stuff. No, yeah. I mean, They most, are wonderful at it. Most of the porn I watch is Japanese. <laughs> What's your favorite <laughs> Japanese porn? Uh, you mean like a title? You want me to pull out a title or just tell you like what I like? Yeah, 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 what's uh, what's the one you keep going back to? Oh God, this they is blur a... out all the stuff though. No, I know, but I have been able to find Japanese porn that doesn't have the private parts blurred out. Mm. It's rare, but you can find it. I this is so embarrassing. I guess one I like that I come back to a lot is a pregnant Asian lady that's in a hotel room, and she's like really big and pregnant, and um, you know, there's all sorts of Asian men wanting to have sex with her. It, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's a joke. 
<laughs> that was totally not a joke. That was not a joke at all. You're into prego porn. No, I'm totally not. But there was something about this video that struck me as hot, and I kept coming back to it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sweating. <laughs> I can't believe you just tried to play that off as a joke. <laughs> okay. In the 90s, Issei also was the subject of a few documentaries, like the 1993 Excuse Me for Living. Oh, here's something that I discovered that I did not know. Uh, All right. In 2008, there was a TV series. It only had one season uh, called Fear Itself. It was a 13-episode horror anthology that had, like, famous horror directors uh, like John Landis, Mary Heron, Stuart Gordon, uh, for example. Did you watch this? No, it sounds a little bit like Masters of Horror, though. It is. It's a lot like that. It's just like that. I watched this when it came out, and I loved it. I, I, I thought I had watched all the episodes. Like, there was an episode called Eater. Actually, that's about cannibals, which is not the one that he was in, that a young Elizabeth Moss was in. And that's a very good episode. So I thought I'd seen all these episodes. And when I was doing some research, I saw that Issei was in an episode of Fear Itself. And I was like, what? And I went back and it was literally like the one episode I did not watch because I thought it looked really lame when I read the synopsis for it. It's called Sacrifice. He plays himself, apparently. I haven't gone back and watched it, but I could not believe that he was in Fear Itself, the TV series. Mm. Blew my mind. Okay. So Issei has often admitted that he still has a desire for human meat within him. He has said, I want to eat them again while I'm alive so that I can at least be satisfied when I die. I think either sukiyaki or shabu-shabu, which is lightly boiled thin slices of meat, is the best way to go in order to really savor the natural flavor of the meat. Issei also feels very strongly that the only way that he can see himself to being redeemed in this life is to be killed and eaten by a woman. I say his plan, what he would love more than anything before he dies. He says, I would like to invite any woman who wants to kill me to step forward. Beautiful women only. That would be the ideal way for me to die. Maybe they can shoot me up with morphine first so that I don't feel any pain. Although, I guess pain is just part of the pleasure. Dying instantly is boring. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Road trip. (laughs) Oh my God, Kevin. You're hot. (laughs) Thanks. You would eat Um, him. (laughs) Do you want me to do this for you? Yes. We'll take some microphones. We will blow up. I wonder if that would be okay. Like, if someone wants to die in Japan, are they okay with you killing them? (laughs) We should look this up and see if we can go eat Issei Sagawa. Yes, because Issei Sagawa has a standing invitation to any beautiful woman to come and kill him and eat him. Uh, Oh, no, here's something. Okay. Another way Issei would like to die if he cannot be killed and eaten by a beautiful woman is, he says, a perfect alternative would be to drown in female saliva. Issei said, wouldn't it be wonderful to be covered all over in women's spit? I guarantee you if you presented Issei with a big pool of woman's spit and said, we're going to roll you off into this, (laughs) he would back out. (laughs) Eventually, Issei Sagawa's fame began dwindling out and he fell onto hard times. By the mid-2000s, he was living off of government support. Issei's crossed over into his 70s now, and he suffers from a cerebral infarction in which a part of his brain that, among other things, helps control motor skills has become necrotic. As a result, 
Yesei is largely paralytic and entirely dependent on his brother, who by almost all accounts is himself sliding into insanity. That's going to do it for episode 12. If and only if you enjoyed the show, maybe you could hop on to Apple Podcasts and give a review, not unlike the one we just received from Dynamite Thunder. Ooh. Dynamite Thunder writes, five stars, different in the best way. I listen to quite a lot of podcasts and serious radio. I love true crime, and I like a lot of the crime slash comedy podcasts I listen to, but not as much as I'd like to. Many of those hosts seem too hokey. The guests sound forced to be compelling, and all of the, quote, funny moments and bits all sound written out and planned. Where's the Line is a genuine podcast that's actually really grown on me and fast. It sounds like actual conversations I've had with friends, but Kevin and Samantha actually know what they're talking about. Good attention to detail, and they know how to end an episode properly. This guy gets us. He does. Oh my god, thank you. As we mentioned in the last episode, we have an almost but not quite brand new way that you can get in touch with us. That's by calling 386-227-7848. What does that spell again? Dumb ass tit. When you call dumb ass tit, you'll be met with a special greeting by our very own Where is the Line announcer. Give us a call and leave us a show idea. Try to freak us out or just scream and hang up. We don't give a fuck. We'll play it anyway. Just ask these resplendent persons hi uh super nervous uh terrifying intro loved it uh i just want to say that i am super excited that i have found a place where i can finally uh express and tell in extreme and agonizing detail my reoccurring dreams uh sometimes slash nightmares of uh lol cats uh they're, they're extremely terrifying sometimes wings uh decaying sometimes just extremely fluffy and uh and funny sometimes rolling licking uh, a lot of licking hairball stuff uh always funny uh, just wanted to express that uh always always funny the lol cat uh, but it's recurring it happens uh recurring over and over uh almost every night since uh well since the lol cat uh phenomenon started i i, I don't know exactly sure exactly uh what it was but uh that's terrifying but so i just wanted to say that uh that i'm extremely excited that uh, i finally have a, an outlet for it and um and uh so i will be calling uh maybe hourly to to uh to uh to relate those it's just very i'm sorry i'm just very relieving to finally have an outlet for this thing. thank you if that voice sounds familiar to you, <laughs> it's because that was Ryan Martin, the subject of episode 11. Uh, Ryan sent me an email shortly after he left that message to let me know that that was him, to which I replied, yes, Ryan, I know that that was you. <laughs> uh, Ryan is Ryan is not quite as uh, adept at disguising his voice as he believes himself to be. So, Ryan, if you're listening, we love you, but work on your disguise voice before you start calling in bomb threats. If you'd like to know what prison life is really like, you can read about Ryan's own experiences on the inside at askajailbird.com and also on ryanirishmartin.com. Our next voicemail comes from a pair of our favorite fans from the land down under. Hi. Hello. G'day and greetings from down under. It's Natasha and Sarah. Sarah, say something disturbing. 
Um, I wish I had stopped at cats and dogs, then I wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha, say something disturbing. Um, parasitic worms freak me out. Um, um, yeah, walking on the other side of the world, upside down. Love your show. Keep it on. Coming. <laughs> favorite curse word? Natasha, what's your favorite curse word? I'm a big fan of skunk. I like skunk. It's my favorite. We use Nelly Cunt. Yeah, Nelly Cunt. We use that often. Okay. So. Over and out. Over and out, guys. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Natasha and Sarah. I feel like every time they get in touch with us, they come up with some Australian phrase that I have to Google. I know. I've learned so much from you guys already, and you know I love you. Thank you both. When I said that I would play any message that we received on our new dumbass tit phone number, I hadn't really counted on my mother calling. Kevin, there's absolutely nothing wrong with your eyebrows. This is your mother speaking, so I'm trying to think of something. My favorite curse words probably... Damn it. Because I say that a lot. I said that a lot when you were growing up. <laughs> I love you. Bye. Probably the most embarrassing thing that could happen on my super disturbing, edgy podcast that I'm doing is to have my mother call and tell me that she loves me. Our next call comes from Amber, who lives somewhere in our neck of the woods. Okay, hey, this is Amber from Alabama. What up? On the east side here. Um, I just called just a minute ago, and I'm very awkward, and I just didn't know what to say, so I think I just went... <gasps> But anyway, something disturbing is pussy maggot, and my favorite cuss word is motherfucking double dicking, and I am so glad y'all have this number except for the fact that it makes me even more awkward than I am. My favorite episode was Travis the Chimp. You totally need more disturbing 911 audio like that. Keep up the awesome work, and maybe I'll meet, meet you in person at Burbank one day. Good Isa. Well, she sounded delightful. Thank you so much for that call, Amber. If you're listening, don't worry about being an awkward person because, uh... It doesn't get any more awkward than Kevin. God damn it. I thought you were going to say us. Stop. And finally, we save the best, most poignant call for last. Crusty. That's it for this episode. Our theme song is Monster Party by Jim 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 Jim. And the music behind me right now is off the instrumental album Super Fun Super Fund by Das Krumholtz Project. You can pick either of those CDs or both of them up along with a coffee mug from our website, whereistheline.net. Samantha is running our Instagram page into the ground, so be sure you go and check out that dumpster fire. Yes, please. If you're old enough to remember Facebook, search for us there too. And once you find our page, go ahead and join the group. That's where all the things start getting weird. Our social media policy is very similar to our voicemail policy. We don't give a shit what you do. Yeah. We'd like to thank Krista, a.k.a. Baker Bell, for her reading of the poem A Bend by Johannes Betcher. If you need some voice acting done, maybe hit her up. You can contact her via her YouTube channel, Baker Bell Blogs. If you're a gamer, check out her gaming channel, Baker Bell Games. She plays a lot of Minecraft, but she plays other games as well. We had a bit of trouble tracking down that poem that Krista read, by the way, and we were never able to find an English translation anywhere online. So we hired a translator to get that English version of the poem that you heard. If you'd like to read the poem that Renee Hardevelt was reading when she was killed by Issei Sagawa in its entirety, we'll have that on our website, whereistheline.net. Finally, if you live in the Orlando, area or plan to be there in August, let me know. I'd love to meet one or two of you someday. Thank you all so much for listening, and I really do mean that, and we'll see you again soon. Goodbye. 
kids when you go to bed Stay away from your closets And don't look under 